dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, where we just read from. Today we'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48, as we continue our series through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you know what it's like to be in over your head? I feel that feeling very often now that I'm a parent, but I'm also a do-it-yourself kind of guy. I think I get that from my dad, Uh, but very often I'll find myself in situations that are just too much for me to handle. So uh, one time Mal's headlight on our car went out, easy enough to uh, change the headlight, so I I watched a YouTube video on on how to change this particular headlight, and uh, easy enough, I tried to do it myself. It took me six hours to change Mallory's headlights after I watched this video. Six hours! Uh, And her car, as I found out, is notoriously uh, bad. Like, it has this notoriously bad design to be able to change the headlights. Because you have to take the entire front bumper off and get all this stuff out and get under there. It's it's crazy. So six hours to get... Uh, to these headlights, and I've also found out that many other people on the internet uh, curse Chevrolet and their demonic car design. So I'm not the only one. I'm not I'm not uh, the, all that dumb. Uh, but you'll understand my dismay when, like, less than a year later, probably like six months later, they went out again. Uh, and this time it wasn't because of the bulbs, it was because of the wire connection. So I spent another five hours in the freezing cold outside, taking out her headlights, cutting wires, and soldering them back together with new connections. So you'll understand my absolute hopelessness when a few months later they went out again. (laughs) I gave up. I needed help. I took it to the shop and I just begged them, just fix it, please. And they, it's been over a year, and the shop did it. Uh, just this week, I had a plumber come out to our house, because I did everything in my power, everything I could, to fix a stinking, leaky faucet, faucet, and I just could not do it. I did everything I knew how, everything I could, and I couldn't fix a leaking faucet, so I gave up. I needed help. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, this idea of helplessness has already been present. But if you don't feel it by now, this part of the the sermon is designed to drive you to your knees in helplessness. This section is meant to make us throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. It's meant to make us feel in over our heads and cry out, It's meant to make us look for somewhere outside of ourselves because we just don't have the ability to do it ourselves. So we must remember that here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the harbinger of a new kingdom. He is the king and he is teaching his people what it means to live in this new kingdom. And as as the king, he has authority. 
right? He's not just a teacher of the Bible. He's the one to whom the Bible points. And this king's demands are high. The New Testament doesn't relax commands. It doesn't relax obedience. It heightens commands. It it heightens obedience. Yes, His demands are high, but His grace is higher. His demands are high, but His grace is higher. So what I've done today is I've, I've boiled this section down to three words. Three words. Intention. Interpretation and injunction. Intention, interpretation, and injunction. And with these three words, what I hope to do is give us a clear picture of this king, a clear picture of his demands, and a clear picture of his grace. So, having read the passage earlier, let's go ahead and dive right in. The first thing to understand about this passage is intention. Intention. Jesus here starts off the the new starts off this part of the sermon with one of the most shocking statements in the New Testament. He says in verse seventeen, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." One time when I was preaching a, a sermon in college, uh, in order to talk about the many. Uh, blessings that we have in Christ. I use the analogy of a shotgun. Uh, it was the best that I could come up with. You know, shotguns have, when you shoot them, they burst, you know, lots of pellets. So I, I in order to get, create the effect of a shotgun, I, I, I cr- made this loud boom to get my point across. And it just startled everyone that was there. It woke up everyone who was sleeping and ensured that they would pay attention. Uh, but that's how this very sentence would have been to Jesus' hearers. It would have been shocking because Jesus is saying everything that the Old Testament talks about, all the commands, all the sacrifices, all the laws, all the ritual, all the prophecies, I am bringing them to fruition. It's happening in me. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that He is the entire intention of the Old Testament. He is the Old Testament's intent. This is important, uh, what Jesus says here, because when we often think of the Old Testament and fulfillment, we think of in terms of prediction. So this is going to happen at this certain time, and then later on that prediction is fulfilled prophet predicts this and Jesus fulfills that prediction. And although that's how some prediction works, that's not how all of it works. Instead, what the Old Testament does is it points to something greater not only through prophecy and prediction, but through people and through events and commands and everything in between. So here's what I mean. The the entire Old Testament not just the predictive parts, has a forward-pointing element. The whole entire New Testament. And Jesus came to fulfill not just the predictive parts, but the entire Old Testament. It's like your car manual that you get out like once every two years to look up like the specific part of your car that you need. 
right? Uh, but Jesus comes and says, I am the car. I'm not just the parts of this car. I am the car. I'm the manual. I'm the one that the manual talks about. The one that the manual points to. So what we have in Jesus is both continuity and discontinuity. He's not completely breaking away from the Old Testament or doing away with it. In fact, he has a high view of the Old Testament. He says, not the least stroke of a pen, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. So Jesus' view of the Old Testament is, is hot. But there's also a discontinuity to what Jesus is doing here. This is a whole new kingdom and a whole new way to live. Jesus says repeatedly throughout this passage, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. What Jesus is doing is he's correcting both. He's he's doing both of these things. He's correcting erroneous understandings of the Old Testament and he's reinterpreting the Old Testament. He's both correcting and reinterpreting. And that's exactly what Jesus means in uh, verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. So, continuity. But then he says, until all is accomplished. Discontinuity. Jesus is the bridge between being grounded in the Old Testament and inaugurating a new way to live. And so from here though, Jesus moves from talking about the law and the prophets or the Old Testament to talking about the kingdom in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so the commands that Jesus is talking about here are, are not, he not, actually doesn't have in mind the Old Testament commands. He has in, in mind these new kingdom commands, and he is referring to the commands that he's already given, that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, and also the commands that he still has yet to give. So what this means, is that we are not only seeing the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, but it's only authoritative teaching. In Christ, we not only see the whole fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, but it's only rightful and authoritative teaching. Jesus is the entire intent of the law. He is the intention and the one who can interpret its true intention. He's not just Moses who goes up to the mountains who receives commands. He's the one in whom these commands have their origin. The one to, to whom they point. And the one who has authority and freedom to lay down a whole new way for his people to live. And what is this new way to live that Jesus lays down? Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
this would have left his hearers gasping at this point. Jesus isn't just demanding that we follow his commands. He's demanding that we reach a level of righteousness that not even the strictest command keepers can achieve. That's the scribes and the Pharisees during their day. They are the standard of righteousness. This is what it means to follow God's word. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed even theirs. Help us. In over our heads. J.C. Ryle said, let us beware of supposing that the gospel has lowered the standard of personal holiness. The opposite, in fact. The demands that the New Testament that Jesus places on us are higher. The commands are intensified. Which leads us to our next point. Interpretation. Interpretation. Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament and its commands. And his interpretation is a whole new way to live. And so this whole new way to live, though, is, is all-encompassing, right? Jesus here, in this, what we're about to dive into, he doesn't move in a particular order, right? He doesn't select these things uh, because uh, they, I don't know, it's not like he, he didn't mean to address other things. So we can't think that these are the only areas Jesus was concerned about. But at the same time, I think we will see that by teaching on these areas, it's sufficient for us to see just how high his standard is. So the first thing that Jesus starts with is anger. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I often think of the rich young ruler here. You know, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks, how, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you know the commands. Uh, honor your father and mother, do not bear false testimony, and Jesus includes, do not murder. And and the rich young ruler responds, all these I have kept as a boy. And 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 typically I think we're just kind of like, uh-huh, you haven't really kept those commands. But I mean, like, honestly, like, how hard is it not to murder someone? I've gone 30 years, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> I haven't murdered, I, I don't think I've been close to murdering anybody yet. I'm, I'd say I'm on a pretty good roll. But Jesus takes this command, do not murder, and he drives it deeper. He says, no, no, no. It's, it's not just about taking someone's life. It's about how you view other people and the heart behind the, the murder. The heart that would lead you to murder. Now, before we go on, this doesn't mean that there's no place for anger, right? Like, so we've talked about anger before. And it would be wrong not to be angry at sin and injustice in the world. But the reason that the New Testament always cautions us against anger is because too often our anger is sinful. So we only get angry when it's a personal affront or insult to us or to our views. And, and our anger is selective, right? We like to get angry over our pet issues or if it makes us look bad. 
But what we also must recognize is even when our anger is as righteous as it can get, it's still tainted with sin. Right? Even in our most righteous moments of anger, it's still tainted with sin. And so that's why the New Testament so often wants to restrict our anger because what lurks in our heart isn't so much anger, but murder. D.A. Carson said that Jesus, by His own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer, in reality, hangs over the wrathful, the spiteful, and the contentious. It was anger that led to the first murder when Cain killed Abel. And it's the same kind of anger that lurks within us. the same anger that causes us to vilify or assassinate someone's character or their reputation. It's anger that causes us to put down others for the sake of winning an argument or being right. And the crazy thing is about what Jesus shows us here is that if there were no restrictions on our sin, if there were no consequences for our sin, each and every one of us would act on our anger to murder our neighbor. That's what he's getting at. This anger that you have is no different than what drove Cain to kill Abel. Cain just acted on it differently. And so, what matters more than going to church on Sunday or doing your religious duty is being reconciled with one another. What does Jesus say in verse 24? First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is stressing the, the urgency of personal reconciliation and forgiveness. Judgment it looms over us so we may must make pains and make every effort to clear ourselves of spite or unnecessary offense. Jesus continues. Um, let's look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who of us stands uncondemned at these words? Our culture is filled with sexualization. Cultures and, or from commercials and billboards and advertisements to TV shows and movies. And you can't go to the mall without being confronted of massive images of Victoria's Secret models. And it's meant to look good and desirable. It's meant to cause you to look. Which one of us has not already committed adultery? men and women. Jesus says that this is the case. 29, verse 29, Take your right eye and gouge it out. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. 
Jesus can't mean this at face value. Because you can gouge out both of your eyes and cut off all your arms and your legs and still be a stump rolling around on the ground and be filled with sinful lust. No, what Jesus means is to take drastic measures against horrendous sin. Drastic measures against horrendous sin. It's not enough to just not sleep around. We commit adultery in our hearts and in our minds. So we can't coddle sin or flirt with it or steal looks or or glance every now and then. We can't give it a home or it will become our master. John Owen, kill sin or it will be killing you. Jesus naturally follows adultery with divorce. He said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, even in our own culture, Jesus' words here are radical. He means what he says. This is a high view of marriage. D.A. Carson said it best. He said, in God's word, marriage and love are for the tough-minded. Marriage is commitment. And far from backing out when the going gets rough, marriage partners are to sort out their difficulties in the light of Scripture. Jesus moves from divorce to oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. He goes on to say, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. In verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Oaths were taken in Jesus' day to make truth all the more solemn and sure. We have oaths in America today. So the oath of office, right? You're sworn into the office of presidency, you take an oath to make your your truth right more solemn and sure. Or we have the sworn testimony. You swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Jesus says, you shouldn't need to, need to use oaths at all. Mean what you say and say what you mean. We like to bend truth, right? So that truth makes us look good. But we must be truthful even when the truth makes us look bad. David in Psalm 15 says, Blessed is the man who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. We are to be people of integrity and not people who rescind on our promises or our our principles. Mean what you say. Be honest. Jesus moves from oaths to retaliation. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Forgoing retaliation is incredibly difficult. I mean, when, when we are insulted and mocked and ridiculed, to not fight back just seems weak. And In fact, When someone offends us and ridicules us and mocks us, 
instead of putting it back on them, we bear that ourselves. Instead of making them feel guilty, instead of making them feel hurt, we're the ones who, who absorb the cost of what they do. Jesus in these verses changes it from self-retaliation to self-sacrifice. And honestly, in these verses through retaliation, there's a, a lot that I wish I could get into because, uh, for instance, in verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he doesn't mean to give to every poor or homeless person who asks of you because at the end of the day, if you do that, you'll end up going broke and you'll most likely end up feeding an addiction to drink or to drugs. Uh, in fact, uh, some some people who do this are good at spotting the tenderhearted uh, and take advantage of them. They know that they're sensitive and are going to, to take advantage of that to ask uh, for money. I've, I've certainly been there. But what Jesus, what we can say about these verses uh, today is that what Jesus is zeroing in on is that we cannot ask the question, what's in it for me? In Christ, we have no more rights. We do not have the right to retaliate. Jesus takes away our right to retaliate. Jesus takes away our right to own possessions, right? If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, right? The, the tunic in Jesus' day was, was a, someone's legal right to own a tunic. It was like a legal thing. And he says, you don't even own right to your own clothes. And, and then if someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. We don't even have the right to our own time. Because when we follow Jesus, we surrender every conceivable human right. We don't even have the right to hate our enemies. Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How many of us can say that we truly love our enemies? That we have compassion for them? That we truly want to bless them. That we want their welfare and their well-being at our own expense. Jesus says, it's not enough to not murder. You must not be angry with your brother. And not only must you not be angry, you must genuinely love the ones who make you angry. The distinct mark of followers of Christ is love. People will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. And not a selective love. Not a love for those who can repay us. Not a love for those who make us feel good, but for a love for those who persecute us. A love even for our enemies. Jesus does is he takes the law and the commands and he places them squarely on the heart. 
And if we are to obey them, we need a new one. This leads to the last and final point. Injunction. Injunction. Jesus says in verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is Jesus' reinterpretation of Leviticus 11.44. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. What Jesus demands here is perfect righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And none of us could possibly meet these demands that Jesus has just laid down. We break them and we fail them regularly. And like trying to do a do-it-yourself project where you're in over your head, these are meant to make us helpless and ask, who then can be saved? Who then is righteous? Yes, the demands are higher. It is not easier to live in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. The demands on us are intensified. But so is the grace. It's because our righteousness is not something that we can achieve, but something that has been achieved for us. Because our righteousness comes from the very one who lays down these demands. Our righteousness comes from the only one who met these demands and whose love for his enemies led him to a cross. Our righteousness is a gift from the one who died for the others who couldn't possibly keep His commands. Our righteousness that He gives us is none other than the divine righteousness of the Son of God incarnate. If you are clothed with Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of God Himself. We receive that righteousness by faith in His name. And what that means is that we are counted perfectly righteous even while we regularly fail to meet His demands. Counted perfectly righteous. And, and, and because, because we are counted righteous, we now have the ability to meet His demands. Tony Marita said it like this, we don't believe in a work salvation. We believe in a salvation that works. So it's because, it's because of this righteousness that's given to us in Christ that we can even begin to live like this. And, and what's interesting about what Jesus says here is that this work for perfect also means complete. It means whole. So, so Jesus is also saying, be whole, even as your heavenly Father is whole. If you take a step back and look at these demands, you realize that Jesus is not only calling you to a perfect righteousness, but to a wholesome righteousness. A righteousness that is genuine. To be the same person on the inside as you are on the outside. 
Jesus is calling us to transparent purity so that we can live in such a way that we don't need to hide anymore. To live in consistent holiness in our hearts and in our actions, in our homes and at church, in private and in public. It's like the movie The Truman Show where Jim Carrey realizes his whole life is on screen. And so we are called to live in such a way that we have no fear of being put on display because our lives are whole and integrated. Think of the example of Saul and David. David commits what we would consider a far worse sin than Saul, right? Saul, Saul, he takes a few sheep, right? Uh, David murders someone and commits adultery. Like we consider those like much worse sin, but David lived a Saul, Saul was trying to put on a, a facade of righteousness, a facade of repentance, but, but David was a genuine and whole person. So what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to both a perfect righteousness and a whole righteousness. It's a righteousness that's possible only through the cross. We have utterly failed to meet these demands. So Jesus not only teaches His people how to live in the kingdom, but dies for them as the only way to bring them into His kingdom. By faith, we have the only wholesome and complete righteousness available to us in Christ. Without Christ, we are not righteous. But in Him, we are declared perfectly righteous with the righteousness of God Himself. Dressed in His righteousness alone. And it's in light of this perfect righteousness that we are now new creatures who set out to live and obey these demands. God promised in Ezekiel 36 that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In Christ, we have this new heart. A new heart to run freely in His commands. His grace to cover our sins. His Spirit to power our obedience. But this is only available through repentance and faith. Repenting of our sins. Repenting of the fact that we can't possibly meet this righteousness. Realizing we're in over our heads and there's nothing we can do but to call for help. Repent putting our faith in His righteousness alone. A righteousness that met the demands that we could never be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are the great King and the great Teacher who teaches His people a new way to live, that is impossible for us. 
Lord, reading these verses, reading this passage, causes us to say, there is no way that we can do this. We're in over our heads. Lord Jesus, how regularly do we fail to meet your commands? But Lord Jesus, you haven't left us on our own. Lord, you heighten these demands so that we would rely alone on your perfect righteousness by faith. A righteousness that is ours, that, that becomes ours, that becomes our new identity. Now, no matter how much we succeed or how much we fail, we are declared perfectly righteous in you. And it's because, precisely because of this new righteousness that we can live in your in your commands, in your demands, but to live them joyfully. To live this wholesome righteousness that you call us to. Lord Jesus, we lack nothing, nothing to live the life that you have called us to. So what we pray for, Lord Jesus, is that if we are not clothed in your righteousness, that you would lead us to repentance and faith, to be drawn to your perfect righteousness by faith, and that because of that, by the power of your Spirit, to live wholesome lives. Where we, our reaction is not anger, but blessing. is not lust, but gratitude. It's not oath-taking, but honesty. It's not hating, but loving. Lord Jesus, help us by your righteousness and by your grace to walk in these demands. And it's in your name that we pray.